You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Anti-lockdown protests in China, but how do we tell how big they are? Turkey continues to wind up for yet another invasion of Syria, and another Australian state bans mobile phones from its schools. Is there any chance every other institution in the entire rest of the world will follow this enlightened lead? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Daniela Pelled and Phil Clark will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Phil Clark, Professor of International Politics at SOAS University of London, and by Daniela Pellard, Managing Editor for the Institute of War and Peace Reporting. Hello to you both. Hello. Good evening. Uh, and Daniela, just because it always amuses me, as our regular listeners, like we have any other kind, will know to ask you about events in the world of sports ball, uh, I do want to ask, have you been paying close attention to the World Cup? Um, uh, I know it's on and people <laughs> run around kicking a ball and getting excited about it. Is that not enough? That that was some absolutely devastating analysis, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought. Phil, um, our, our shared homeland, of course, enjoyed what I think common consensus holds is the, the mightiest result of this World Cup so far, our 1-0 vanquishing of Tunisia on Saturday. Are you confident Riau chances against the Dane? Yes, and, and way beyond. I just expect us to lift this cup as a Australia tends to do in anything global and sporting. There's clearly no doubt about this whatsoever. And and all those decades on the World Cup front that we have spent lulling people people into a sense of false security must surely be about to pay off. The most unpredictable of World Cups is our moment. 2022, the year Australia springs the trap. You have heard it here first. Uh, We will start tonight's show proper in China, where, as usual, it is difficult to be certain exactly what is going on. It is clear enough, however, that something is. Plentiful, plentiful rather, and plausible footage has emerged of public protests by Chinese people wearied of their government's ruthless adherence to a zero-COVID policy, long past the point at which the rest of the world has learned more or less to live with it. Possibly illustrative of the Chinese Communist Party's concern, at least one BBC reporter attempting to cover the protests was arrested and beaten, and censors are cutting shots of maskless mingling crowds from China's World Cup coverage. Well, earlier on the briefing, Marcus Hippie spoke to the China analyst Isabel Hilton. Marcus asked Isabel how big a deal these current protests are. Oh, they're definitely exceptional. I mean, you do see protests in China. They tend to be over specific local issues against, you know, specific abuses by local government. They're very rarely targeted at the party, at the leadership, at the system, because that is regarded as treason. And that can, you know, that is a career or a life ending move. So the the, the courage of the people who have been driven uh, onto the streets by COVID, but then have, uh, uh, you know, gone beyond COVID to call for political change is is quite 
unusual and and fairly remarkable. And it does appear to be fairly widespread, though I would enter the caveat that actually we don't know. We are looking at images that people have captured. Um, they're from all over China. They're fairly extraordinary demonstrations. But what is very hard to gauge is the scale within any given city of, of those demonstrations or the longevity. We see these snapshots rather than, you know, a long moment. So it, it's quite hard to be accurate, but but unusual, absolutely. Do we have an idea to which extent these protests are still about COVID restrictions and to which extent about something else? As, as has been mentioned already, protesters have been heard calling for the freedom of press, for example, and also for the president to resign. Yes, and and you see, uh, you know, when when protests take hold, you tend to get a particular meme, and in this instance, the particular meme is is the holding up of a of a white a blank sheet of paper, which uh, is obviously a symbol for censorship. And I was watching a, 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 a video of a young woman in a absolute third tier city, uh, not not anywhere, you know, a third tier city in Zhejiang in central China with a, a tape over her mouth, holding a white sheet of paper, chains on her wrists, walking just very, very calmly down uh, an ordinary street. Now, that's, you know, that's a pretty um, brave thing to do. She's easily identifiable. She is making a, a point which is really not about um, COVID or goes way beyond COVID. Now, how many people there are, we don't know, but you can be absolutely sure that they will be targeted. The other thing that I did notice is that there's a lot of chant and response going on in the slogans. And some of that chant and response has picked up on what was on a banner that appeared on a bridge in Beijing just before the 20th Party Congress. And it said a whole series of things like we calling, we want, we want, uh, um, we we don't want uh, dictators for life. We want elections. We want freedom. We don't want lockdown. We want food. And you can hear these, these slogans being chanted uh, again all over China. Again, what's the scale? But I think the speed at which it's happened is indicative that there are really a lot of very, very weary, fed up people and that they blame the government. Isabel Hilton speaking to Monocle 24 earlier. Um, Phil, where China is concerned, if Isabel says something is significant, it's probably pretty significant. Um, how, how big a whoop do these demonstrations look to you? They, they do look uh, quite remarkable. I've been talking to a couple of Chinese PhD students at SOAS today. Uh, people who watch Chinese politics have grown up with Chinese politics that clearly have a good barometer for this kind of thing. I, I think they echo exactly what Isabel has just been saying in your package there, that, that in their lifetime, uh, they can't think of a protest that's had this scale. Uh, and also, they've been commenting on on how uh, cross-cutting it is in terms of age groups, that it's not just young people, that it's, mm. it's elderly people who are fed up with the COVID restrictions um, out in the streets, you know, people that you perhaps wouldn't expect to be very demonstrative in their protest have been doing that. So, so there does seem to be something that is historically unusual here. Uh, Daniela, we are seeing in this footage emerging from China, um, with all the caveats that Isabel was also careful to outline there, we probably have to recall that there's probably at least 1.4 billion people who aren't protesting uh, in the streets of China. But what is being demonstrated, it strikes me, is the two things that authoritarian regimes fear the most, defiance and ridicule. It's not going to make the Chinese Communist Party happy, is it? It isn't. But if you consider the extremely punishing conditions in which people have been living uh, for months, almost years now, in a way, it's surprising that it took 
this long. Mm. The, the the zero COVID strategy has been extremely harsh. China is the only country left pursuing it. But having said it, it worked. They can't really go back on that and say, actually, we're going to try something different. And they also physically can't because rates of vaccination have been so low, et cetera, et cetera. It will be um, pretty disastrous to, to, to change to change track. Sadly, though, and we seems to be you know, the protests may be significant, but they already seem to be playing, you know, the usual according to the usual playbook is that the response has been repression and they already seem to be um ramping down a little. I mean, we're following it and the Chinese students in SOAS are able to follow it. But if you think about how much, um, uh, it, how hard it is to access uh, information about this on the ground, I mean, mm. it's very impressive that it's been, a, you know, it, we, we see this across classes and across different areas. But if it's about control of the information space, then the Chinese state has got the upper hand on that and it's it, it is extremely hard to share information and to coordinate um phil this thing about chinese television censoring the world cup coverage does seem to have been fairly conclusively demonstrated by various broadcasters comparing contrasting with what everybody else is getting versus what is being broadcast in china D- does that actually seem plausible that it's that it may be the coverage of the World Cup has been a major catalyst of this discontent because obviously people are tuning into it. They are seeing, or at least at one point were seeing, crowds of people who've all flown in from overseas just sort of mingling, almost nobody wearing masks, and starting to wonder what is going on here. There seem to be two things in the last week or so that have really sparked this level of protest. So the World Cup is clearly one of those, Mm. this sense of comparing what's happening in China with what's happening in the rest of the world. Everybody else is having this massive party, albeit in a problematic space in in, in Qatar, and and those in China are clearly not having those kind of festivities. The the other event is this big Arumki fire Mm. uh, that took place about 10 days ago, 10 people trapped inside a high-rise building, a very slow response by the authorities. That event also seems to be mobilised by a lot of the protesters, uh, showing this is the problem when you lock people down, when you confine them to these dangerous spaces and you limit a government response to anything that isn't COVID. Um, it's almost inevitable that there's going to be this kind of human disaster. So it seems to be the confluence of these two events that have particularly pushed people out into the streets in the last week or so. Uh, Daniela, just a final thought on this, and you, you have, I think, partially answered this question already. Um, China, as you noted, is the last country still doing this. Even Australia uh, gave up on it about a year ago. What's your sense of why China is being so weird about this? Is it just the reluctance to admit that the policy hasn't or isn't working now? Is it a genuine concern about a massive health crisis that a reopening might occasion, given those low rates of vaccination and given the relative inefficiency of the Chinese vaccine? Or is it the thing that they by which I mean the Chinese Communist Party, actually is doing the stuff that the foil hatters of the West think our governments are doing? <laughs> um, well, uh, one issue is that this um, zero COVID also has its own huge economic uh, mm. impact that's inescapable. But I think it's also a very good example of when you have an autocratic government taking decisions um, along ideological lines without any uh, um, without public consensus or discussion 
in, in a situation where there isn't the same sort of free and fair exchange of information and amongst experts, and there's also no blowback from their um, from their actions. I mean, you remember how hard it was for all of us being in lockdown uh, here, um, but we could complain about it, mm. and we there were people who were accountable for it, and we had. Um, statistics and we could also vent about it as well and remember how utterly infuriated where we were when we saw like our neighbors having parties or anything i mean that's how chinese people must feel now seeing what's happening at, at the world mm. cup and they don't have any avenue to um complain and there is no accountability well, let's look now at Turkey, which is keeping the region and the world guessing as regards its intentions towards Syria, and not for the first time. If, as Turkey has unsubtly telegraphed, it is about to send troops over its southern border, it would be the fourth such incursion in the last six years. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, contends that this is necessary to protect Turks from Kurdish militants. He blames the PKK for the recent bombing of an Istanbul shopping street. The PKK deny involvement. A ground assault would follow recent Turkish airstrikes against Kurdish targets in Syria and Iraq. Um, Daniela, first of all, to the other week's bombing uh, of a shopping precinct in Istanbul, Erdogan continues to blame the PKK. But is it actually quite significant for all the caveats that we have to apply to the PKK's word for literally anything? Um, is it significant that they're specifically denying this? Because not all that long ago, only a few weeks ago, there was a suicide bombing of a police station in Mersin province and the PKK said, yep, that was us. I mean, if you were going to commit an act of terror... Um, at great risk and cost, and, and you, you know, you kind of want to make it count and take credit for it. No one else has claimed responsibility either, mind you. Well, um, I mean, it, it works. I, I, what's clear is that it works very well for Erdogan's narrative. Mm. He blames the YPG, which is the the militia um, that he says that it's backed in in Syria by by the US, but he says is um, part of the of the PKK, and uh, he's. Spent the last few days um, taking action. I mean, there's been airstrikes, Syrians have been killed, um, Kurds have been killed. Surprisingly, though, he hasn't actually gone in yet. I mean, he's been threatening this, mm. but this is uh, as um, you know, this is the worst kind of unrest that we've had in this in in this area for a while, and it seems clear that the 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 kind of mess of the of the war in Ukraine is also playing a part because. Uh, there is a baffling um, array of interest in this particular part of, of Syria. And Erdogan also has to play a, a careful game not to offend people too far and um, you know, keep, keep a balance between Russia, the US and Syria. Uh, we will come to the Ukraine angle of this shortly because it's probably not insignificant. But um, Phil, in terms of the regional aspect of it. Is a fourth Turkish incursion into Syria likely to accomplish terribly much that the previous three didn't? It would be difficult to see that it, it does. Um, just in the sense that the previous incursions by Turkey really have been quite ham-fisted. That they, mm. They've often been uh, very short, uh, quite bloody towards the civilian population, but but haven't led to Turkey capturing the kind of territory that it wants and certainly doesn't seem to have diminished the PKK as, as a force. And it's put 
Turkey back in the international spotlight uh, in terms of its atrocities in the region. So Erdogan, I think, knows that there's quite a high price to, to this kind of incursion, which I think is at least part of the reason why he's, he's quite uh, cautious about going in uh, at the moment. Um, and Daniela, I think, has already pointed to the other key dynamics here, which is that Turkey can't do this unilaterally. It's, it's having to balance its actions against the interests of particularly the US and, and Russia in all of this. So, so, so I think there are lots of reasons, I think, why, why Turkey's quite reluctant to, to put boots on the ground and they prefer this kind of aerial bombardment and kind of missile across the border approach. Daniela, on the subject of the US and Russian view of it, is Erdogan perhaps calculating that this is a propitious moment because nobody's likely to stop him? The United States, of course, still needs Turkey to sign off on Finland and Sweden joining NATO uh, and Russia fairly obviously wants him to win the presidential election in June. Yeah, I, you know, Biden has been um, following the, the great tradition of um, many uh, U.S. presidents of just sort of being a bit sort of faffing about with foreign policy and not covering himself with with huge glory. Um, certainly, this is not the time to annoy a strategic and important member of NATO. Um, on the other hand, uh, Russia-Turkish relations are. Um, a, a bit nuanced. Russia is, of course, um, Turkey, sorry, is, of course, selling um, Ukraine lots of extremely useful uh, mm-hmm. drones. Uh, but at the same time, Turkey is not entering into their whole sanction palaver. Like you said, it's not really keen on NATO expansion. To me, I mean, this seems like quite a good time from sitting from uh, Erdogan's point of view to, to, to push forward a little bit without without too much pushback from the other forces uh, at play. But Phil, does there seem to be an end game here? I mean, is it clear whether or not Turkey actually desires to formally help itself to actual Syrian territory? I, I've never thought that that was in Turkey's long-term interest. You know, they, they seem quite fleeting in their engagements in Syria, that they have this desire to disrupt the PKK. They're still trying to maintain a good relationship with Assad. Mm. That seems to be a big part of this picture as well, that there's there's not a desire to be seen as a, a full frontal actor in all of this. This in some ways seems to be a bit of a playground for, for Turkey to exert uh, a sense of regional influence and regional power. This is a place where Erdogan can project uh, a certain amount of clout. Um, he can make himself useful to the global superpowers, but but without really wanting to get too embroiled in, in what can be very, very messy. So I I don't see Turkey as, a, as an actor that wants a, a kind of a long-term embroilment in, in, in this kind of potential quagmire in Syria. Just a final thought on this one, Daniela, and it's a, a follow-up to what Phil was saying about the idea that Turkey does now at least want better relationships with Assad. Whether anyone wants to like it or admit it or not, has everybody more or less acknowledged on the quiet at this point that after more than a decade, Assad has basically won this war? I don't think that people have acknowledged it on the quiet. I think it's <laughs> loud and I think it's loud and clear. And and, and Russia is is pushing um, for you know, having a mediator role in kind of also doing a rapprochement between um, Turkey uh, and Syria. But I mean, it's interesting to note that that's the big deal now. Mm. Uh, Assad, like Assad, uh, reviving his relations with former allies like Turkey, and now he's—it's very far from him taking his place at the, you know, the seat of nations. And you remember, I think nearly twenty years ago, he was welcomed to Downing Street. Well, that's not going to happen. But yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone is pretending that. Sadly, very sadly and tragically, the Syrian regime won the war.
Well, let's look now at Ukraine, specifically at Kherson. This time last year, it was a European city home to roughly as many people as Karlsruhe, Timisoara or Thessaloniki. Those people are now beginning the vast and depressing task of cleaning up after Russian assault and occupation. Among the many crimes Russians appear to have committed during their stay is the extensive looting of Kherson's museums. And this appears not to have been the spontaneous larceny often associated with marauding troops, but a planned and calculated operation. Thousands of paintings and other artefacts, according to museum officials, were loaded aboard Russian trucks and driven away. Um, Daniela, first of all, what's the point of this? Other than, I mean, just straightforward theft, nicking valuable stuff, presumably for your own gratification or further retail. But is, is, is there a point beyond that? Well, in this particular case, in this particular conflict, the Russian um, point point of view is that there is no Ukraine. There is no such thing as a separate Ukrainian national identity. Uh, it's part of Risky Mir, and let's just deny. what. If, if, if we remove it, it can't exist. And it's also extremely excruciatingly painful for the, mm. the country um, to experience. But, I mean, show me a conflict where this doesn't happen. Mm. I mean, this is absolutely an intrinsic part of conflict from ancient times um, until today. And now we recognise um, destruction of cultural uh, artefacts as, as a war crime. Mm. And it, it's another one of the war crimes that goes beyond bombs and soldiers um, killing each other, even killing civilians. There is a whole litany of war crimes, for instance, sexual violence is mm-hmm. a war crime, that have the aim to destroy and alter the fabric of society, like Russia um, basically stealing thousands of Ukrainian children and for having them forcibly adopted. This is another way to destroy, really, um, not just win on the battlefield, but to really strike a blow at the heart of a, of a nation and, and, and incur trauma that goes on into the future. Uh, Phil, it doubtless does incur trauma, but in the short term, at least, or even in the long term, does it even work from the point of view of the conquerors and looters? Because this seems like one of those things that is just going to incur yet further fury in the people whose stuff you are nicking. And Daniela's correct in pointing out that this happens in pretty much all conflicts, but it's also noticeable that some more famous artefacts which have been destroyed have been talked about uh, and valued much more after they were demolished than while they were still there, the Bamiyan Buddhas of Afghanistan being probably the most obvious example. That's right. And also a lot of these looted artefacts have an amazing way of getting back to their original location, because it's not as though this is going to end up in Putin's backyard. It's going to end up probably in the Russian black market. Um, and these things have a way of kind of recirculating. I mean, we've seen this with the conflict in Mali, what's happening in Central African Republic at the moment. I mean, many of the African conflicts end up with the, the loot kind of eventually coming home, unless we're talking about the colonial period. And then most of that stuff is, is unfortunately <laughs> not going back anytime soon. But in the more recent conflicts. Uh, the, the black market has a way of sort of finding this this stuff back to its uh, original location. I mean, one of the details of this Herson story that I think is quite remarkable, and I think you alluded to it in your introductory comment, was that the, the Russian troops are going into museums and, and, and other uh, commemorative spaces um, w- with art experts who are pointing out the stuff that is really either financially or culturally valuable. So it's not just rampaging troops kind of grabbing stuff that looks pretty and potentially expensive. They, they're going in with art experts 
experts with a kind of catalogue of items in a particular museum and saying, that's the stuff we want. I mean, it's, it's tempting to observe that from Russia's point of view, they might have done better to go into Ukraine with armour and artillery <laughs> yes. and air power experts. That, that, that's right. It's, it's a sort of peculiar expertise that they've decided to, to, to preference. I, I also slightly wonder about the professional status of some of these art experts. Um, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm, I'm the art specialist seconded to such and such a battalion of, of the Russian army. It seems a, a strange vocational choice on the part of those people. But I think the, I, I think the serious point here is just it's the, it's the level of orchestration that's behind this. It's the level of planning mm. um, that, uh, that, that, that is going you know, behind this, this war crime of, of cultural destruction. It's, it's not just wanton damage. Uh, Daniela, it's, it's, it's a weird one because you're correct in pointing out that it is a war crime and it is, uh, and no one disputes that. But it's arguable, though, that it's kind of a... Well, this is a crime against property, not a crime against people. And, and obviously crimes against people should probably take precedence when these things are prosecuted. But nevertheless, do international courts, international prosecutors need to start taking this sort of stuff more seriously? Ah, oh, undoubtedly. Um, I, you know, the, the, the saying goes, a nation stays alive when its culture stays alive. Mm. These are the intangible and sometimes tangible bonds that that are absolutely essential to national identity. And it's true that human life isn't necessarily taken in this, but it goes it goes far beyond that. Now, right now, I mean, I, uh, IWPR have been covering war crimes. Um, justice process in Ukraine extensively. Mm. And it's quite clear the Prosecutor General says that right now the cases that are taking precedence are loss of life, torture, sexual violence, and so on and so forth. So this kind of uh, of crime is, it will, it will wait. It will wait. There isn't, there isn't an urgency around it, but I'm absolutely sure that this will be on the list of prosecutions. One of the cases that actually IWPR reported extensively on this at the time was in Mali, that the, the International Criminal Court got itself into a, a real wrangle in Mali that it didn't deal with cases of, of direct violence against the local population. Its, its initial cases there were around uh, cultural destruction, uh, the destruction of various mausoleums in the northern part of Mali. And part of the criticism of the ICC was that it, it was picking these this low-hanging fruit. Um, why are you going after these cultural cases and you're not touching the ones that that really seem to impact people's kind of bodily integrity. So it, it, it's an important justice question, but also the sequencing of these cases really matters. So given that the ICC, for example, is in Ukraine at the moment, if it were to only go after these kind of cultural cases and not deal with some of the more, in my view, serious cases, the court would have a problem in, in the same way that it did in Mali. Well, on an entirely lighter note, to South Australia, where it has been announced that mobile phones will be banned in schools from next year. Just a matter of weeks after the portable talking machines were introduced, I have family in Adelaide and I'm therefore allowed to do the jokes. South Australia follows Western Australia, Victoria and the Northern Territory in barring such implements from educational establishments with remaining liberal free-for-alls believed likely to follow. Um, Daniela, my question, uh, which will come as no surprise to you, I'm sure, is does this go far enough by which I'm asking should mobile phones not in fact be banned from literally everywhere? Should they perhaps be not invented retrospectively? I'm fine with that. I say introduce slates and, and pencils in uh, back into schools. Um, and, and the flinging of erasers at the heads of dilatory students as well. Never did me any harm. Clearly, clearly, <laughs> clearly not. Um, I mean, I, I re, you know, as something of a, of a parental screen fascist myself, I can't really see the problem because surely 
children going to school only need mobile phones to contact their parents at the beginning and the end of each day in case of some sort of um, public transport-related peril. See, I I am sceptical of that, given that I and... Frankly, everybody I know made it through schooling in the pre-mobile phone age alive. No, exactly. I mean, it would be very nice if the phone, mobile phone, when it came to school-aged kids, even secondary school, had this basic purpose of basically being a phone rather than being used for Snapchat or whatever the young people are up to <laughs> these days. I, 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 I'm yes, with so, their, their talk tick and their apps what. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think, certainly from what I know about primary schools, certainly, but even secondary schools in, uh, in the UK, there are some pretty strict rules about mobile phones not being seen or heard during school hours and um, a whole sequence of retribution um which i support i support <laughs> entirely but uh yeah i mean the idea that 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 um that kids at school would be there uh, using their mobile phones in the lunch hall or whatever it just seems completely maybe the it's completely completely bizarre i mean maybe the british are a bit more uh, old-fashioned about this and i in which case i completely endorse that well see phil this is this is kind of where i came into this story in that i think it's actually weird that kids were ever allowed to take phones to school in the first place yeah I, that that also strikes me as quite peculiar as a father of very small children um i i see this as my future and, and it looks quite frightening as someone who also went to school in south australia i, I think that we have to cut maybe a little bit of slack where to you young people to make, who are... you learn to make fire from rocks <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> They're still, they were doing that last week. So the leap to mobile phone technology has been breathtaking, I think, for the average young person in South Australia. These are also people who are profoundly deprived of any uh, sort of sensory stimulation whatsoever <laughs> because they happen to live in South Australia. And I can, can say that with some experience. But I, I mean, it, this sort of, I think, cuts back to a, you know, a theme that we seem to have been discussing quite a bit uh, in this program, which is state control. And, and I think there is something interesting in the sort of Australian, both federal but uh, state-based government mindset, which is a about crackdowns on people's behaviour. Um, this sort of thing, I think, would be almost unimaginable uh, in the UK. It would certainly be unimaginable in somewhere like the US. But in Australia, it's a society that is quite tolerant of um, of large-scale state intervention, um, well, it, even yeah. into the lives of very small children. So I, I, I mean, it, it is the, the, the weird duality uh, of Australia in that we like to romanticise ourselves as a nation of convicts. But what, of course, we don't like to talk about is that necessarily means we are also a nation of cops. Um, so it, 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 it is about half and half. But just to wrap this subject up, I did want to ask you each in turn, and I'll ask you first, Daniela, on a, on a scale of one to, you know, 10 zillion, how happy are you that you got through school without such a thing as the mobile phone, still less the internet existing? Um, school, teenage years, and I'm very happy to say I got my first mobile phone age 30. It <laughs> saved me from near you know, half a lifetime of, uh, of, of trouble, problems and potential humiliation. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And I, I held out even later than that. I mean, I, God, can you imagine... Well, I mean, obviously, I'm very I, old, by I, the way. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I can feel imagine things worse, but it would be ghastly. 
No, her- horrific. Uh, I think the the school landscape around mobile phones is really, really frightening. I think the amount of bullying that goes on, the the filming of kids. Be- I mean, I wouldn't want anything that I got up to in the schoolyard to 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 have been permanently recorded and shared around even people in my immediate circles, let alone more widely than that. Um, I, I mean, I think clearly what this isn't going to stop is the amount of bullying that takes place mm. outside of the school environment. So I think you know, I think the the Australian governments, plural, need need to be you know. A little conscious that this isn't going to stop the problem necessarily that they're trying to solve here, but it will at least get kids unglued from their screens during playtime and during class time, and, and hopefully uh, focusing on on slightly more enlightening parts of the human experience, like cricket, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Clark and Daniela Pellard, thank you both for joining us. You're listening to the Daily. Finally, on today's show, it's time for our letter from New York City. Here is our correspondent Henry Ree Sheridan. You're lying in the dark. It's warm and comfortable. The surface beneath you is a kind of specially treated cardboard that offers an agreeable balance of firmness and support. Suddenly, the roof lifts off over your enclosure. You're blinded by bright light. When your sight adjusts, you see two human hands coming towards you from above. The fingers of the hand take firm hold of your buns They gently hoist you into the air. It's not an unpleasant sensation. But your pleasure quickly morphs into panic. You're being lifted higher and higher. Your trajectory becomes clear. The human hands are carrying you towards a human mouth whose lips are being licked in a universal gesture of ravenousness. So this is it, you think to yourself. You're scared, there's no doubt about that. But you're also more composed than you would have anticipated. Something like a sense of destiny fulfilment washes over you as oblivion draws in. Three inches from the man's now open mouth, you're in a downright stoic state of mind, considering the circumstances. But then something happens. Though you can't see it, you can hear the room's door swing open. The hands holding you pause, suspending you in midair. The man whose mouth you were being lifted towards turns his head to face the door. Kathy, he says, it's a pleasure to see you. The person at the door responds, it's a woman's voice. The pleasure's all mine, Eric. That looks like a really expensive sandwich, she says. I'm a bit surprised you can afford it, considering you accepted your first three paychecks in Bitcoin and Ethereum, and there's recently been a massive cryptocurrency crash. The man holding you responds, I appreciate your concern, Cathy, but I'm not jumping the crypto ship just because the water's got choppy. All industries have their ups and downs, and crypto isn't going anywhere. The woman speaks again. Hmm, maybe you're right. It's impossible to know for sure. Although, one thing's for certain. Getting your hands on crypto in New York State has just gotten a lot harder. You see, on Tuesday, I enacted a temporary ban on new cryptocurrency mining permits at fossil fuel plants. It's a move aimed at addressing the environmental concerns over the energy-intensive activity. At this, the man holding you lowers you all the way back down onto the cardboard tray you came in. You feel relieved, obviously, but also a little hurt. 
Are your buns not irresistible? I mean, sure, you're eight hours old, but with contemporary refrigeration technology, that's not even halfway through your lifespan. And this guy's no spring chicken himself. But when you tune back into the conversation, it becomes clear it's not about you. The man who was recently going to eat you is speaking again. For goodness' sake, Kathy, he says. This is the latest setback in a bruising month for the cryptocurrency industry. It's been only days since the company FTX, a trusted player in the new market, suffered a swift and public collapse that led to its declaration of bankruptcy. Sorry, Eric, says the woman. Remember, it's never too late to cash out. Although, it would be an embarrassing political U-turn you're probably anxious to avoid. You hear the door close and the woman's footsteps fading down the corridor. The man is now pacing the room agitatedly. He seems to have completely forgotten about you sitting there on his desk until he closes the lid of the container you're in, plunging you back into darkness. That's a dramatisation of an exchange that may well have taken place this week between New York Governor Kathy Hochul and New York City Mayor Eric Adams. I decided to present it from the perspective of Mayor Adams's vegan sandwich. I find that imagining contentious political disagreements from the viewpoint of inanimate objects can really help to shed light on knotty issues. In any case, I hope you feel I presented their contrasting stances on the role of cryptocurrency in New York in a neutral and balanced way. I'd like to end this week with a recommendation. Get yourself an air duster. It's a can of compressed air you can use for blasting particles off of hard-to-dust areas such as the control panels of electronic devices, electric razors and the more intricate nooks and crannies of car interiors. But you can also use an air duster for much more. They're good for freeing small things that have been dropped into narrow gaps. They're excellent for blowing balloons up into the air and seeing how long you can keep them up there. My favourite use for mine is to blow out dinner table candles, ceremonially marking the conclusion of romantic home meals with my partner. Try it. You've got nothing to lose. The long winter evenings flying by for Monocle 24's New York correspondent Henry Reese Sheridan. That's all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists, Daniela Pellet and Phil Clark. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.